Would you pray with me? God, that's why we're here. We're here to meet with you. We're here to encounter you. It's what it's all about. Lord, we don't come to this place to get our tickets punched or some kind of attendance record. Or we come to meet with you. We come to hear from you. God, one of the greatest tools you've given us to hear from you is your word. And so today, as we come and talk about the power of your word in our life, why it's so important, the way you want to use it, the foundation of your word in our life, we just pray that you'd open our eyes to see new things we've never seen before, and you'd speak to us by name. And by the time we get out of here, we would sense that we've been encountered by the living God. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, good morning. Great to see you. Uh, welcome. Uh, if your name, I mean, if this is your first time here, we want to welcome you. Uh, just excited to, uh, to have you. We, we're at the start of a brand new series, and so if you're, you're here today for the very first time, you're coming at a good time. My name is Pastor Mike, and I'm just going to go ahead and, and jump in. You've got your note sheet out, and, and so we're ready to go. The uh, story today starts, he's about 30 years old, um, and he'd been waiting for this day his whole life. Earlier in the year, he'd had his birthday party, and it was a milestone, you know, turning 30, and had all his friends in, his family in, it was a great day, and yet he knew this was the year it was going to start, this was the year it was going to happen. And so on this day, he packed up his, his belongings, few though they were, he said goodbye to his mom, his, his brothers, said goodbye to some friends, and, and he headed south, to the south of the country, where his cousin was, was baptizing the nation. And uh, when he got there, he was baptized, and whether he knew before he was baptized or not, we know for sure that by the time he came out of the water, he knew what his assignment was. It was time for him to launch his new movement. He'd been preparing his whole life to launch, and yet there was one last thing that he needed to do first. And so he went further south, just by himself, as far as we know, to the wild and the wastelands of the country. And there for the next month, he would hang out with his father, actually 40 days, just spending time with his father, preparing, thinking, praying, fasting, reflecting, getting ready to launch his movement. And yet it was not only just a time of preparation, it was a time of warfare, spiritual warfare. We're told he was there not just with himself, but he was there with the wild animals, he was there with angels, and he was there with demons. And there's a lot we don't know about those 40 days, but we do know how they ended and we do know then that last day, the fate of the planet, kind of fate of the race, the destiny of the world, no exaggeration, was on the line. And when that fateful day came, it was the word that saved the day. Well, today we're starting a brand new series, or, or continuing a brand new series we started last week. It's called The Movement in Rocky Peak. It's a series about our, kind of our vision, our values. Uh, our strategies that we believe God's giving us to lead us into our future. And if you were here last week, you know we started last week with a, a, a vision statement, kind of a purpose or mission statement. We're using the word the same way. It's there in your note sheet. And so we believe that our vision is, is to unleash a movement of passionate Christ followers. They're doing four things. They're pursuing God with all their heart. God, you're number one. We want to please you more than anything else. Know you, love you, connect with you, follow you. We're loving people in radical ways. We're serving sacrificially time, gifts, resources. We're sharing Christ. We're being a part of his, his movement, the advancing of his movement. And so last week was sort of a foundation lesson. Today we begin to move on and talk about some of our values, these core values that God has been working into our life the last few years that we believe as a leadership team will lead us into our future. 
And today we come to value number one. And between now and Easter, we'll be spending one week uh, each on these seven core values. And today we come to value number one, and it's the value of the Word of God. It's the Word, embracing the truth. And, and of course, if you've been here at Rocky Peak any length of time, this won't surprise you because you know we're, we're passionate about the Word, right? I mean, we're, we're a church that loves the Word. Uh, it's why we spend so much time at our weekend services unpacking it. It's why we build our whole life groups around it. It's why we are constantly encouraging us to be in the Word on your, on your own. But, of course, it's not just our value. It's Jesus' value. And in fact, uh, for each of these seven values, this probably won't surprise you, but you're going to find every week that they flow out of the life of Jesus, which only makes sense because if we're a movement of passionate Christ followers, then our values have to flow from Jesus himself. And so Jesus was a man of the Word. And what we're going to do today is we're going to start this time of teaching by taking a look at at the role the Word played in his life. I think it's a place we need to begin. And of course, it's a big challenge. You could start so many places. I mean, uh, if you study the life and teaching of Jesus, the Word is on every page. And so there's so many ways you could illustrate this. But I've picked three or four passages that I think are critical windows into Jesus' psyche, his mind, the way he looked at life, the way he understood the Word and the role it played in his life. So there in your note sheet, you've got the passages, and we're going to start off by taking a look at the first one in Matthew chapter 5. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. And and let me set it up. This is at the start of his ministry. Um, Jesus has just been baptized. He spent 40 days in the wilderness. He launches his movement. Uh, He calls his movement the kingdom of God. He's inviting people to join him with this movement. And at the start, he does this very famous sermon that becomes the most famous sermon in the history of the world called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this Sermon on the Mount, he's laying out the message of his movement, kind of the core message. And in verse 17, very early on, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of that sermon, very early on, he makes a statement, uh, 517, follow along. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, there are many ways to talk about the, the Old Testament of Jesus' day, this Bible. One of them is the law and the prophets. And he says, so he says early in this sermon, don't think that I've come to abolish the Bible. Now, I don't know how that strikes you. That strikes me as kind of odd. Like, like, why would he say, hey, uh, don't think that I've come to abolish the Bible. I just want to be really clear right up front here. Don't think that I've come to abolish. Like, why would you think that? But here's what was going on. The reality was is that the spiritual leaders of Jesus' day, they'd added so many man-made rules to the Bible, and they treated them as if they were the Bible, that when Jesus came and didn't honor those man-made rules, it felt to everyone like he didn't honor the Bible. Does that make sense? And so he says, uh, and we do this in our churches all the time, don't we? Throughout, this, throughout the history of Christianity, there's always been men and women who've come along and added all these man-made rules to God's word and then treated as if they're God's word, and then it messes people up. And, and so Jesus says, hey, I didn't come to abolish the Bible. I know it might look like that, but, but don't think I didn't come to abolish the Bible. He says, uh, but instead, I have, I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill, uh, to kind of finish the story. I've come to fulfill it in the same way that the last chapters of a novel fulfill the early chapters of a novel. That I've come to finish the story. God started writing the story in the Old Testament. I've come to finish the story kind of with, with the New Testament. Okay? And he says in verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law, another name for the Bible in the Old Testament, the law, until everything is accomplished, it's fulfilled, till the story is finished. 
And anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in this new movement I'm starting, the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom. So right at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus starts off and he says, I want to be real clear on this. I know the rumor mill's going out there, a little confusion. I want to be clear. I am a man of the word. I stand with the Bible. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to finish it. I come to write the next chapters in the story God's telling. Okay, so right at the beginning of his ministry, he puts a stake in the ground. Let me tell you where I stand with the Bible. Now, next passage on your note sheet. Go to the right in your Bibles to John chapter 10. Now in John chapter 10, it's a different situation. (laughs) Now we're in the middle of his ministry. Jesus has been making some some outrageous claims that are irritating people, like to be God. And some of the spiritual leaders are having a hard time with this because in their mind, if if you're saying things that make yourself equal with God, then that's blasphemy and you should be stoned. And so, so Jesus is going to explain in this passage why it's okay for him to be making these claims. And he's going to quote an obscure passage from the Old Testament in Psalm 82. Now today we're not going to go into the whole story of Psalm 82 and what his argument is because that's not the point of why I'm bringing it up. The reason I'm bringing it up is in the process of explaining why it's okay for him to be making these claims, He makes this one little statement, like a sidebar statement, about the Word of God that's extremely important for our topic today. And so let's let's follow along. In verse 31, it says, again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. (laughs) Now notice it says, again. It's kind of common. You got your rocks? Jesus is coming to town. Um, I got my rocks. You got your rocks? Uh, But Jesus said to them, I love it. Jesus has such a sense of humor. And, and I love it when he's sarcastic, because it justifies my sarcasm. And, and so, here he's going to be very sarcastic. It just cracks me up. He says to these guys, I already stoned him. He says, hey, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. Hey, for which of these are you going to stone me? <laughs> oh, did I tick you off? Was it the healing of the guy who's been sick for 38 years? Is that why you're going to kill me today? Or was it the healing of the blind man? Maybe raising the guy from the dead? Like, like what, which, what have I done now? You know, it's, it's just very tongue-in-cheek. And they're like, hey, verse 32, we're not stoning you for any of these, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, you claim to be God. Now, a little sidebar here real quick. We're not going to talk about this a lot, but sidebar. Uh, there have always been people in the history, ever since Jesus came, that claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. There's cults out there. There's uh, uh, philosophers out there. There's always, but it's clearly here that he's claiming to be God. They're going to stone him because he claims to be God. And catch this, if he's not claiming to be God, that's the last thing you want to be misunderstood, right? And so it's so easy to clear it up. All you'd say is, hey, time out. I'm so sorry. I miscommunicated. Oh, no, I would never claim to be God. That would be horrible, right? That's what anyone else in the Bible would say. But not Jesus. He's like, oh, well, let me explain why I made the claim. And he goes to Psalm 82. And he he quotes this psalm. And he says, um, uh, verse 34, is it not written in your law? Now, law, remember, again, is another name for the Bible, the Old Testament. And he says, so he's going to quote Psalm 82. Is it not written in your law that I have said you are gods? Now, we're not going to go into this whole argument here because that's not the point. But look what he says next, 35, this window into his mind. He says, if 
if he called them gods in Psalm 82, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. So he's going to make the argument. He says, if, if, uh, if this is what the Bible claimed, the word of God claimed, and we know for sure that the, the word can't be broken. So in that little statement, he's, say, he's making two claims about the word. I don't want you to miss it. First of all, he's calling the Old Testament, the law, he's calling it the word of God. Now I want you to catch that. It's very, very, Jesus calls the Old Testament the word of God. It's, to him, it's a supernatural book. Okay? Now, to him, it's not the words of man, it's the word of God. And the second thing he says is the word of God cannot be what? Broke it. So not only is the Old Testament, Jesus himself calls the Old Testament word of God, but he says it can't be broken. If God said it, it's going to happen. Take it to the bank. God can't tell a lie. You can absolutely bank on it. His word can't be broken. Now catch this. All I wanted to establish to this point is Jesus Christ put his stamp of authority on the Old Testament and said it is the word of God and it can be completely trusted. You know, sometimes people will ask me, Mike, why do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? And, of course, there's a lot of good reasons for that. We could talk about archaeology. We could talk about fulfilled prophecy. We could talk about a lot of things. But for me, number one reason is that Jesus said it was the Word of God. And when someone rises from the dead, his credibility goes way up in my eyes. Okay? And so when Jesus claims to be God... And he says, let me prove it, I'll rise from the dead. Then I say, okay. Then you tell me what to believe. Okay, Mike, number one, the Bible is the word of God. Got it. Okay? You see, does that make sense? The logic makes sense. Okay. So, so here's what I understand. So, so at the beginning of his ministry, he, he, he puts a stake in the ground. Middle of his ministry, he makes these statements. Now let's go to the end of his ministry in Luke chapter 24. So back to the left in your Bible. Luke chapter 24, <coughs> the story here, the story is this happens on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus has risen from the dead, came out of the tomb that morning. And there's rumors beginning to surface that he's risen from the dead. There's been some Jesus sightings. And, and so uh, his men are in the upper room. And they don't believe it because, because they're skeptics, because they're men. <laughs> and anyway, um, and I, I'm proud of that. Anyway, um, aren't you glad? I'm glad the disciples were skeptics. I'm totally glad they're skeptics. Like, I wouldn't want them to be men who stuck their head in the sand and just believed anything. How can I follow those kind of guys? They're not real guys. I, I'm glad they didn't believe, all right? I'm glad. I'm glad because they're just like me, just kind of lame, and so that I can relate to these guys and they can lead me. So, so they didn't believe, and so then that person, so Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, um, they're all blown away. Of course, they're excited, but they're also really highly confused. Like, like Jesus, if you're the Messiah, why do we go through this death and resurrection thing? Like, why didn't you just stay alive? <laughs> why did you have to die and then come back? It's very confusing to them. And so what does Jesus do? He does a little Bible study with them. He says, I know, let's have a life group. I'll be the leader. And 
And so in verse 44, he says, this is what I told you when I was still with you. In other words, before the resurrection. Um, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And this is another way of talking about the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the writings of the Psalms. So he says, everything that's written about me had to be fulfilled. Now catch this. What he's saying. He's saying again, the Bible's supernatural book. It's my story. Let me tell you. It told about everything I would do. Let me tell you in Deuteronomy. Let me tell you in Exodus. Here, let's look at this passage in Jeremiah. Let's look at this passage in Isaiah. Let's look at this passage in Psalm 22. And so Jesus does a major Bible study with them, you see, to help them understand what's happened. It's a supernatural book. And he says, hey, everything written about me had to be fulfilled because if God said it, it has to happen, right? There's no, there's no, it's God's word. It's just absolutely take it to the bank. And then he says something very interesting in verse 45. It says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And I want you to underline that. He opened their minds so they could understand. I want you to catch something. Jesus is telling us something very important here about the nature of the Bible. That not only is it a supernatural book and that it's the very words of God, but it has to be understood supernaturally too. That if you and I are going to understand the Bible, it's because Jesus comes and opens our minds to understand it. You see, see, the Bible is the word of God whether you get it or not. But it doesn't become the word of God to you until Jesus opens your mind. And this is what happens in our weekend services or what happens in a life group or what you're reading on your own and you're coming across and suddenly it's making sense and you're sensing God speaking to you and you're sensing it coming together and I'm getting it. What's happening is that Jesus is opening your mind to understand it. And without this supernatural assistance, the Bible remains a dull and boring book. A lot of you remember that before you came to Jesus. You tried to read it. It didn't make any sense. And then like Leah shared on the screen, once you give your life to Christ, it begins to make sense. It begins to come alive. It begins to speak to you. Why? Because Jesus is standing by you supernaturally uh, opening your mind so that you can see what he wants you to see at that day and that time. Does this make sense? But see, that's why church is not going through the motions. Church is an encounter. You see? And as a church, we need to develop an encounter mentality. That when we come through these doors, we come in His name. We come under His banner. We come as His followers and we say, Jesus, speak. And so we come, we open up His Word and we say, Jesus, open our minds so we can understand the Scriptures. As we spend time with Him in the morning or late at night or at lunch hour, Jesus, speak. Remember what Joanne said, Holy Spirit, speak. It's exactly right, you see? So we become the movement of Jesus who are hearing the voice of Jesus as he under, opens our minds to understand his word. Does this make sense? This is why Christianity, it's a supernatural experience from beginning to end. All right, so now the next passage on your note sheet is in Luke chapter 24. Uh, uh, you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke there. Now these, uh, these are the events of the life of Christ uh, uh, during his temptation. And this is a story we started the day with. 30 years old, 
Jesus leaves home, been waiting his whole life for this day, travels south, gets baptized, comes out of the water. The Spirit tells him, you need to go in the desert. Don't launch your movement yet. Go in the desert, spend 40 days with your dad. You need to connect. You need to, to hear. You need to fast. You need to pray. But it was also a time of spiritual warfare. In fact, we're told in Mark's account that it was 40 days of spiritual warfare. We often picture it like it was 40 days of fellowship with the Father, and then at the end, the bam, the big, you know, the big assault from Satan comes. But if you read Mark's account, he uses the present tense. He says that while he was out there, he was being tempted, present tense, the whole 40 days. It was a, there was an ebb and flow of temptation. And so we're told that he was with there with the wild beasts, with the angels and the demons. So it was 40 days of not only fellowship with the Father, but spiritual warfare. And so what we have in these accounts, and you can check them out later if you want to read them on your own, what we have in these accounts is really the final assault. When Satan comes, the final assault, kind of the grand finale, you know, picture um, like the 4th of July, the fireworks, the grand finale. What we have is the grand finale final assault. And here's what we often don't understand. We often read the story of the temptation of Jesus as if it was just a, a primarily a personal deal. It wasn't a personal deal. Um, the history of the human race hung in the balance. You see, what had happened is we had rebelled as a race, and because of our disobedience, death had come into the race. We studied that last series, right, in Romans. Um, and, and so Jesus has come to restore, to rescue us, but if he disobeys, the whole plan goes down because he'll be subject to death like the rest of us. So, so the history of the human race, the fate of the race, the destiny of the cosmos is in the balance in this encounter. Are you, are you following me at that? This is a cosmic event that is happening that will determine the course of all human history. And at that moment, when Satan comes, and with his three temptations, three times Jesus does not debate him. He does not argue with him. He does not pray for guidance. He goes right to the Word. And three times, three temptations, as if the Holy Spirit said, Jesus, here, and throws him the sword, and boom, he takes the sword, and he goes to battle. Three times, three victories. Now, we read a story like that. Every quote, by the way, is from the book of Deuteronomy. And let me tell you my theory on this, all right? I can't prove this, my theory. I really believe that at that time, that 40 days in the wilderness, that Jesus was meditating on the book of Deuteronomy. Now, now the reason I, my, my theory is, is, is that what we know is that the book of Deuteronomy was the final sermon series from Moses to the nation of Israel before he left them, before they went into the promised land. It was telling them, this is how you succeed in the promised land. And, and so Jesus comes now, and Jesus is the new Joshua. See, his name means Joshua. Joshua and Jesus saying He's the new Joshua. He has just crossed over the river Jordan and been baptized. He's preparing to lead the nation into the new promised land. And so he's meditating on the book of Deuteronomy. To know how do we succeed in this? I can't prove that. And whether it's the case or not doesn't make any difference in the argument I'm about to make. Here's the argument I'm about to make, though. I, said, I think that often when we read the story of Jesus we tend to assume, well, of course he knew the Bible to quote it because he's God. He wrote it, right? And so we kind of picture it like this. You know how today you can, you can download the whole Bible on your computer or your iPhone? And then we kind of look like, I'm sure Jesus had a special, unique Son of God hard drive. <laughs> and what happened is that 
at his baptism or sometime before. God just kind of downloaded the Bible, so it was always there. But here's what I suggest. Everything we know about Jesus suggests this was not the case. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, it's on your note sheet, Luke specifically tells us that when Jesus went into adolescence at age 12, that he grew in favor with God and with man, and that he grew in wisdom and he grew in stature. Notice he got smarter and he got bigger. Well, you all have teenagers, you know how it works, right? Except they don't get so smarter. But anyway, they get bigger. But anyway, that he grew in favor. And so, so he grew in wisdom and stature. Catch the implications. What Luke is telling us is Jesus was smarter spiritually at 18 than he was at 12. He grew in wisdom. He was smarter at 26 than he was at 22. And you say, well, how did he get smarter? Well, one of the key, key ways he got smarter was through the Word. Because as a Jewish lad, a Jewish young man, he would have been raised on the Word at every stage of his development. And so here's Jesus working the Word into his life over his whole lifetime. And then the 40 days before the big attack comes, he's meditating on the Word. And so the time comes when he's ready. Now I want you to catch this. If we're going to be a movement of passionate Christ followers, how in the world can we follow Jesus if we don't do what he did? You see? How do we think we're going to change the world if he changed the world by his word, by the word? You see? He spent the time for the word. And so when the battle came, and the three temptations came, he turned the, loaves, turned the stones into loaves. He was ready. Deuteronomy says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Hey, Jesus, I have an idea. T take a leap, a flying leap off the top of the temple. Fly down, sort of like Superman. Make it known that you are a superhero, that you are truly the Messiah. No, no, no. Deuteronomy says, do not tempt the Lord your God. Hey, Jesus, I've got another idea. Why don't you bow down and worship me? I will give you all the worlds. No, Satan, be gone, because it says you shall worship the Lord and fear him only. So three times when the temptation comes, three times the spirit throws him the sword, three times he goes into battle, and the history of the world goes on, and the plan is on. At the time of his greatest weakness, at the time of his greatest need, when the fate of the planet was in hanging in the balance, Jesus went for the word. Now, how do you think we can become a movement of passionate Christ followers unless we embrace the word? You see what I'm saying? All right. Now, as we move on today then, um, I want to talk to you about why it's so important for us to run everything we do through the grid of God's Word. This is a phrase I often use. All our decisions, all our beliefs, what we do, we need to get in the habit of running through the grid of God's Word. This is what I think, but what does God's Word say? Let's run through the grid and let's see what sticks. You see? Now, uh, there in your note sheet, you have a section. And it, it's called the grid of God's Word. <laughs> Why is it so important? And, and I want to run through three, uh, three reasons why the Word is so important in our life. And then we're going to talk about uh, where do we go from there. Uh, number one, first of all, the Word for us is the path to life. Like if I were to ask you, do you want to get the most out of life? Do you want to live life the way it's meant to be lived? Um, Jesus would say, the key is my word. You, you need to learn my word. You need to follow my word. You need to let it speak to you. One of the most famous things that Jesus ever said is there in your note sheet, John 10.10. 10. 
And he says, I have come that they may have life, talking about his followers, and that they may have it abundantly. So the reason I've come is so that you can experience life to the full. That's kind of why I'm here. Um, and then he went on in his life to say, and, and so if you want life to the fullest, the key is my word. And I want to take you to a powerful passage, to me one of the most powerful passages in the life of Jesus. It's in John chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, go to John chapter 8. Now, John chapter 8, Jesus is counseling some new converts. I'm sure that some of us here came to Christ, maybe at a Greg Laurie uh, campaign harvest festival, or maybe it was uh, a Billy Graham or something, but maybe you came to uh, Christ in a church, and you, you raise your hand, you walk the aisle, you come down, and they always have a room off, a per-counseling room. Right? You go and give your life to Christ, and, and then someone can counsel you. Wouldn't it be cool if, like, Jesus were your counselor? <laughs> He's like, you just, you go, okay, I want to follow Jesus. You go up, and he just, you go, he shows up personally. He says, oh, you're just a tough case, you know. I think you need some extra help. I came personally to help you out. And so this is kind of the situation. Jesus is just kind of laid out here. Uh, he, he's kind of laid out the, uh, what it means to be his follower, and some people have come to Christ. And, and so now he's counseling them what to do next. And he says in verse uh, uh, 31, to the Jews who had believed in him. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you the verse. Verse 31. Go ahead and flip your pages. Okay, good. Thank you. Okay, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, they'd just been converts, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching. Now, literally, in the Greek, it says, if you remain in my word. Okay, if you remain or if you stick with, if you uh, follow, if you obey, the idea is you stick with me. Okay, so if you remain in my teaching or my word, um, you are really my disciples. Now catch this. What Jesus is saying is there's only one way to know whether you're truly his disciple or what we'd call a follower. And that's if you follow. You catch this? He says, uh, if you hold my teaching, you are really my disciples. What he's saying, now, now I know this is a little tough. I'll go slow here. The only way you know in your life if you're truly a follower is if you follow. Let me slow it down. <laughs> so he's saying, the only way, you know, oh, but Mike, when I was 12 years old, I was a human like, and I, I, I went forward in a meeting, and I, I prayed to receive Christ in my life. I love like hell ever since, but I'm a Christian. Uh, you can call yourself whatever you want, but according to Jesus, you're not. He says there's only one definition of a follower. That's, are you following? You're not following. You're not a follower. So he says, uh, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples and my followers. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's giving us an, uh, like an algebraic equation here. Like A plus B equals C. So we can follow here. If you hold to my teaching, A, then you will know the truth, B, and the truth will set you free, C. A plus B equals C. Are you with me? Okay, guys? A, if you hold to my teaching, you're serious, you follow my teaching, then you will know the 
truth, the truth will set you free. Are you following? You get this. Okay, so here's what he's saying. Well, what if I went forward at a meeting, but I, I don't hold to your teaching? Well, then you won't know the truth, and the truth won't set you free. So what Jesus, if you want to be unleashed in your life, if you want to experience this life that I came to give you, this life to the full, guess what? The key is, the path is my word, you see? Now, there's a great verse in the Old Testament, and it's there in your note sheet from Psalm 119. It's the second one from Psalm 119. And, and here's how the psalmist puts it. This is, he'd learned this principle in his life, that the, the word leads to truth that sets us free. He says, I run in the path of your commands. Catch that. I run in the path of your commands. For you have set my heart, what? Free. Okay. So, so here's what happens. Let me tell you how a mature Christ follower sees the word. Okay? Here's how a mature Christ follower sees the word. He's come to a place in his or her life where he's experienced freedom. Like he's been following the Lord, and God's word has led him to a place of freedom. And so he now says, hey, when I look at the word, when I look at the word, I run in the path of your commands because you have set my heart free. Now, here's how a new believer sees it, or someone who hasn't come to Christ. A new believer, go like this. I drag my feet in the way of your commands. Okay, God, I guess I've got to do this. You following this? This is how, that when, we, when we're not free, we look at God's commands, and we say, okay, I don't really want to go that way, but I guess I've got to do it, so I'm going to drag my feet in God's command. And, and now, as we begin to mature in Jesus, what happens is we go, hey, this is not so bad. I kind of walk. I'm just kind of taking a stroll in the path of God's commands, because it's kind of making sense to me. And then as we get a little bit more mature in Jesus, we just start jogging. This is really cool. You know, this whole thing with Jesus, it's working out for me. I've got to jog in the path of God's commands. But when we get mature, we come to a place like, are you kidding me? God is so much smarter than I am. It has worked out so well. In my life, I look back when I followed him compared to when I didn't. It was so much better. But man, I, I, I'm in. Like, let me start the race. Like, you tell me what to go, God. I know it's not always going to be easy, but I am going to run in the path of your commands because you have set my heart free. Does this make sense? So what happens is the, more, the closer we get with Jesus, the more his ways start making sense, and we start not, not just like dragging our feet, but we're running. Now, I'm going to ask you a very important question right now. And this is a very important paradigm issue for your life spiritually. There's kind of a couple ways for us to look at God's word. And imagine a, a spectrum here. And on one end, we're going to put the word, uh, we're going to put one word, another, another word, right? At this end of the spectrum, in fact, in your life group homework, you're going to do this this week. But, but on one end, we're going to put the word restrictive, okay? One way to look at God's word is restrictive. Now, this is how the newer believer or the non-Christian looks at the word. It looks as restrictive. The word tells me to do things I don't want to do. The word keeps me from doing things I want to do. It's restrictive. It's holding me back. God's not for me. He's against me. He's kind of holding me back. And so we can look at the word and say it's, we see it as restrictive. Or at the other end of the spectrum, we can look at God's word and say, no, no, no. God's word is not restrictive. It's protective. That when, when, the, when the sign says don't go this way because the bridge is washed out, 
It's protecting us. It's not trying to restrict us. It's trying to protect us. So here's a question for you. In your life, and I want you to get real honest down deep inside. Don't raise your hands because I know that's not really honest. But do you in your life, do you see God's word as restrictive or do you see it as protective? Here's what I I would suggest. I think all of us are somewhere on that spectrum. And, And how we answer that question will determine how fast we become a passionate Christ follower. We'll come back to more later. Number Let's go on. Well, there's a verse there in your note sheet, Psalm 119. This is how Jesus, I think, would see it. Your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. So it's, it's a path to life. The word's a path to life. Okay, number two. The second, second reason it's so important is that the word is the source of truth. It's not only like a path to life. The word is the source of truth. <laughs> Well, we live in a day and age where increasingly in our culture, there's, uh, we live in a culture that's uh, is postmodern world doesn't really believe that such a thing is true. doesn't believe there's such a thing as truth and error as right and wrong for every situation. Kind of truth is what is true for you, what right is what's right for you. And so we live now. The problem with that is that works really well if there isn't such a thing as truth. If, 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 our culture is right that there is no such a thing as truth, then that's fine. You can believe whatever you want. It's right, wrong, whatever. And, and that's fine. It will all work equally well. Um, but if there is such a thing as gravity, we got a problem, right? Uh, if there is such a, like, uh, you can believe whatever you want about the creation of the world or, or about the nature of human beings or the purpose of life or a, how, what it takes to make a marriage work, what it takes to make raise good kids. or You can believe whatever you want. And if there is no truth, then it's fine. But if it turns out that there is truth, you're in a world of hurt. You see? And so Jesus comes along and he says, no, there is such a thing as truth. In fact, I am the truth. And, and he said, furthermore, if you want to know the truth, my words will take you there. In fact, uh, we just looked at John chapter 8, but there on your note sheet is another passage from John chapter 17. This is at the end of Jesus' ministry. He's praying. This is the night he's arrested. He's praying. His men are listening in, taking notes so they can write the Bible later on. And so he, he's praying, and he's praying for his men. He's concerned for their safety because he's about to be arrested. He knows Satan's going to be attacking them. He's concerned about their, their well-being. He wants them to thrive. He wants them to grow. He wants them to pursue God. He wants them to thrive. And so he's praying that God would, he uses a biblical word, sanctify, that God would set them apart, that he would, he would make them special, he'd protect them, he'd help them to grow, he'd help them to thrive. Okay? And so look what he says in chapter 17, in verse 17. He says, Father, would you sanctify them by the what? The truth. Catch this. The way we're set apart, the way we're protected, the way we grow, the way we thrive is by the truth. You see? And he says, then look what he says next. Your word is what? You see that? So so Jesus Christ comes along and says, hey, it's the truth that sets you free. It's the truth that sets you apart. It's the truth that protects your life. It's the truth that leads you. And guess what? Your word, Father, is the truth. It is 100% undiluted truth. 
just like Joe hadn't shared in the video. It's pure truth. And so if you want to experience the life God has for you, guess what? You need that truth. Right? Now, third, third thing. So the word is not only the path to life, it's not only the source of truth, the word is the key to growth. Throughout the Bible, the Bible, one of the analogies the Bible uses about our spiritual life is growth, that like we, we're born again as kids and little children, and then we need to grow up. And, and it uses this analogy that the Bible is like spiritual food. So Jesus said this. He said, the man, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So it's just kind of this growth uh, analogy. Uh, and so, so he uh, goes on here, and here's a couple passages that talk about the way the word leads us to growth. In James chapter 1, no cheat, it says, he chose, us, uh, he chose to give us birth to be born again. And that happened through, what's it say, through what? The word of truth. So this is how God raises people to life. This is how God creates. God creates through his word. He speaks his word to us. He opens our mind, and it creates, and it gives us life, and we're born again. He says, therefore, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Not just save you at the beginning, but continue saving you. Cause you to grow and expand and become the person you want to be. Look at the next one, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, uh, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it is the word of God. Catch this, which is at work in you who believe. So as Hebrews 4 says, the word is alive, it's active, it's at work in you. The word of God, when he opens our minds to understand the scripture, the word comes in and begins to work and to move and to shape and to change. It's active, it's powerful, it's life-giving, you see. This is how God gets things done. God speaks and things happen. When he wanted to create a world, he spoke and things happen. And when he wants to create new life in you, he speaks and things happen happen. You see, it's how we grow. And so the word, it's our source. It's a, it's a path to life. It's a source of truth. It's the key to our growth. And now, if that's true, now here's, if that's true, kind of follow the logic of this. If it's true that it truly is the path to life, and it's the source of truth, and it's the key, if it's true, then there's one huge therefore for us as a church, and it's individual Christ followers. And here it is on your note sheet. The big therefore is we must never mess with the word. Okay? You just don't mess with the word. And you say, well, Mike, what do you mean mess with the word? Well, there's two ways to mess with the word. You ready? One way is to add to what it says. One is to take away from what it says. By adding, I mean we do what the spiritual leaders of Jesus they did. They say, they, they make up new rules and they say God said when God never said. It's the heart of legalism. This is what legalism is all about. Legalism is we say God said when he didn't say. Nothing will kill our spiritual life faster. We lose the freedom, we lose the joy. But there's a second way that we mess with God's word and that's when we subtract. When we come to certain passages we don't like so we skip them. Have you ever had this happen? You're kind of reading along. You're starting to get nervous because here it comes. You start reading really fast. Oh, good. I'm safe again. Kind of like running past the dog. You know? So you're like, you're single. 
You come in that passage on sexual morality. Just love one another and be kind. Woo! Made it. <laughs> you know, you're dealing with finances. And then give. Whoa! Okay, I'm safe. Love your neighbor as yourself. We do this, don't we? We just kind of speed it up. We ignore passages that we don't feel comfortable with. Maybe they're not popular in our culture at the time. Maybe they'll, they'll require something of us that we're afraid to get. And because we see God's word as restrictive, we don't want to do it instead of protective. And realizing this is the key to our future and our growth right there, we just skipped it. There's instructions to path the life, and we just skipped it. You see? And so Moses talked to Israel about this before they went into the promised land in Deuteronomy. And there in your note, Deuteronomy 4, 2, 1 and 2. Hear, O Israel, Moses says, the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may what? Live. You see that? It's the path to life. And you may go in and you take possession of the land. Do you realize that God has a future for your life? Every one of us here, he's got a planned future. He's got a land that he wants you to go in and take possession of. And the key to it is following his word. That's what he's saying. He says, you may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. Now catch this. Underline this on your note sheet. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it. You see right there? Two ways we mess with God's word. We add or subtract, but keep the commands of the Lord your God. Look at the next word, Proverbs 35 and 6. Every word of God is flawless. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Wow. And so as a church or as a group of Christ followers here, what are we going to do? We, we want to run everything through the grid of his word because, because we believe it's the path to life. It's the source of truth. It's the key to our growth. And because of that, we don't want to add to it. We don't want to take away from it. Because every time we add or we take away, we're undercutting our life, the truth, or our growth. This just makes sense. Okay? So as a church, we want to embrace that. Now, there in your note sheet, there's a section called the movement. Where do you stand? And I want to do this every week that we get together in this time, this series on vision and values. Every week I'm going to ask you some questions to help you do some self-evaluation. Because I always talk about, well, here's our vision, here's our values. The whole point is like, well, where are you in this process? Are, are you with us? Are you not with us? Where are you with Jesus, not with him? And so I want to ask you some, some questions to help you evaluate today. Where are you with core value number one? So let's jump in. Five very quick questions. Number one. The first question is the one I alluded to earlier. Is the word for you, is it protective or is it restrictive? In your life, do you see the word as protective or restrictive? Here's what I can tell you. If you see it as restrictive, there will probably come a time in your life when you will stop following Jesus. Because he will ask you to do something hard at some point. And, and because you don't think he's looking out for you, you won't trust him with that. And so you'll stop following and you won't develop into a passionate Christ follower because you're going to stop because you don't realize he's, out to look, he's looking out for your best interests. Does that make sense? So, so this is a very important question. In your heart of hearts, do you see God's word when he asks you to do the hard thing? Do you see it as protective or restrictive? And number two. The second question is, is the word your ultimate source of truth? In your life, is the word of God your ultimate source of truth? Notice, when you have to make a decision of what you believe or what you do in your life, 
How do you decide in your life what is right and good and true? How do you decide that? Is it what your parents taught you? Is it the way you were raised? Is it what your professors tell you? Is it what Oprah says? Is it what CBS or NBC or CNN is broadcasting? Is it current research, you know? It's like, like how do you decide in your life what is right and good and true? How do you decide that? Jesus says the ultimate source of authority in our life needs to be his word. That it's telling us the truth. Do you believe that? And I can push you on this. Because I can guarantee you that we all have times we don't believe this. Can I tell you something? As your pastor, there are times I don't believe this. Yeah, whoa, really? Yeah, because every time I debate or argue with God, it's evidence that I don't really believe him on this. Every time I question, is that really right? What am I doing? You see, I'm saying, I, I, Jesus, in general, I think you're a very smart guy. But on this particular issue, I want you to hear me out. <laughs> right? And we do this, don't we? We do this. Okay, next one, number three. Are you willing, here's a good question, are you willing to let go of your traditions? Now, now, we all have traditions. Some are good, some are bad. We have things that we've been taught, things that we've learned. Some we've heard in sermons or Bible studies or whatever. We've got certain spiritual opinions. And the point is, is that what, what do you do when your opinions collide with the Word of God? What happens in your life when what you've been taught by spiritual leaders or authorities, when that collides with the Word of God, what do you do? I'll tell you what happened when Jesus came, when his teaching collided with the teachings of spiritual leaders. The spiritual leaders rejected his teaching in favor of their traditions. And nothing will kill you faster. We need to be a church that's constantly saying, well, this is what we've been taught, or this is what we believe, but is that really what the Word says? And if it's not, even if it's a cherished tradition, if it's at odds with the Word of God, then we need to say, we need to correct. We need to change. Number four, the fourth question is, are you working the word into your life? Now, we saw that, that Jesus spent a lot of time in his life just studying the word, memorizing the word, learning the word. It, it was a key to his success. The question is, are you working the word into your life? Are, are you making it a priority to show up here at the weekend services so we can study the word together? Is that a priority? Or do you work into your schedule when it fits? Uh, are you taking time on your own in some kind of intentional way, work the Word in your life, in your personal life? Are you in some kind of group or Bible study where you're working the Word in? Are we working the Word in? But again, how can we be passionate Christ followers if we don't do what He did? And then number five, I don't have number five, let's, let's make one up. <laughs> I just realized you don't have number five. Okay, number five, here it goes. Are you hungry to hear God speak? Now, this is an important one. In some ways, the most important. Are you hungry? Remember we studied this, how when Jesus was teaching and he, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures? Remember we talked about that? Here's what I've learned over my life, is that usually Jesus will only open our minds for one kind of person and one kind of person alone. That's a person who is willing to follow when he opens their mind. 
There's a lot of believers out there that believe in Jesus, yes. But the Bible's boring. They go to church in a service like this. They can be sitting right next to someone who's going, that's amazing. It was so helpful. I'm really growing. And they go out, really? I didn't get anything out of it. They go to their life group, and nothing's happening. Did the homework. Change your life? Not really. Ever read the word on your own? Yeah, sometimes. It's kind of boring. Right? It's possible to be a believer and have the word never speak to you. And, you know, the primary reason, the primary reason is because there was a time when Jesus did speak and you quit listening. And so Jesus is going to practice what he preaches. And what he pre- preached was, don't cast your pearls before swine. <laughs> and so he's not going to speak if we're not really willing to listen. And the reason is because he loves us. Because I tell you what, when God speaks and you don't obey, it hardens your heart and you will never be able to hear. And so because he loves you so much, he would rather stop speaking than to keep speaking and harden your heart and ruin your spiritual future. So he waits until we're ready to listen. And so are you hungry to hear the voice of God coming alive to you through his scripture? Now, Every week in this series, this is my plan, I want to end the day by painting a picture of our future. You know, a vision, it said a vision is a, a, picture, a mental picture of the future that inspires passion. And every week, I, I want to take some time and say, what would it look like to be a church that embraces the word like this? And I want to take you to our future right now. And, and I'd like you to uh, just to kind of go with me on this journey. And then when I'm done, J.D.'s going to be coming out singing a song. It's going to give a time for you to reflect on what we've talked about and reflect on these five questions. Right now, we're going to turn the lights down. And I'm going to paint a picture. I'd ask you to close your eyes and to bow your head and go with me into our future. It's a Sunday morning. And this is a new person. They've never been to Rocky Peak. God's been waking them up. There's a new hunger in their heart to know God. They, they have never really been in church before, and they don't know what to expect, but they've heard good things are happening here, and so they come. They don't know what to expect. And they pull up, they park in the, the back parking lot, back behind our auditorium. Well, I tend to park if you know where that is. And as they get out of the, their, their cars just a few minutes before service, and they're walking in, they don't know where to go, so they're following the crowds in, and one of the first things they've noticed is that there's just a lot of Bibles. Like everyone seems to have a Bible. And there's different shapes, black ones and brown ones and pink ones. And there's big ones and there's small ones. And some have covers and some don't. But it seems like everyone's got a Bible. They've been to a few other churches. They've never seen like this. They, they walk into the auditorium and they get the program. And time comes to a time of teaching. And it's hard to put into words. But there's just a sense of expectancy there. It's almost as if people are on the edge of their spiritual seats. They're just wanting to hear from God. And you can sense it. Bibles come out. Note sheets come out. Pens come out. People are, are hungry to meet with God. They don't have a Bible, and so they, the person next to them offers to share it. As they open up to the passages, they're surprised. They've never seen a Bible like this. It's all, like, colored and marked up. There's notes in the margins, and things are underlined. It looks more like a textbook than a Bible. Well, it's not of a Bible. Something sits on the shelf and it's holy. You don't write in it. So they're kind of curious. So they look to the person on the right, and sure enough, they've got writing in their Bible, too, in different dates. They glance over the person's shoulder in front of them, and sure enough, it's the same thing. During the service, they're taking notes, and they're writing things in the Bible, and they're underlying things in the Bible. 
And after a few weeks of coming, they decided to take, try one of these things that's called a life group. And so they called the office to sign up, and they go. They don't know what to expect. They've gone and bought a Bible by now because they figured out that that's really important in this place. got a Bible. And so they have the Bible, and they come to their life group. And once again, they're just amazed with the seriousness with people come. It's like everyone's done their homework. Their, their homework's filled out. When it comes time to sharing, people are pretty passionate about what they're sharing. They talk as if God would show them things personally that week, things that apply to their marriages, their kids, or their job. Or, and they're excited to share, and they're learning from one another. It's, it's like the synergy happening. They're all learning together. What God shared with them separately, they're, they're sharing together. And it's not just in the formal parts of the church. They notice it around town. They, they go to Starbucks, and they, they notice some faces from Rocky Peak. They're over in the corner, and there's, they have their Bibles out. They go to Borders, and they see some, some people there. They, when they walk on campus during the week, they see some people out on the patio with, with Bibles out. And they, when they stop at the new coffee shop that's on campus, they, they, they see these Bibles going. It's just like a spontaneous thing. And the, and the conversations that these people have, they often bring up what they're learning. It's just kind of spontaneous. It's not like they're trying to be spiritual or legalistic. It's just, a, it's just sharing with one another. It's natural conversations. The longer they're around, they hear stories of people referring to getting up early in the morning or staying up late at night or going out to their car at lunch. It's hard to put a, a finger on it, but it's like these people really believe God's speaking to them. And their lives are changing. And if you talk to them, they, they would describe this. So they, the whole perspective on life is changing. They would talk about how the words change their approach to their finances or raising kids or their marriages. And they talk about the wisdom God's given them and how it's caused them to get promotions at work. Most of all, there's just a sense in this group of people that God is alive. And he's well, and he's speaking, and that his word is powerful, and it's changing their lives. And over time, they really are becoming a movement of passionate Christ followers. And they're pursuing God with all their heart because they're hearing him speak. And they're loving others as he's teaching them, and they're serving sacrificially, and they're they're sharing this excitement, this relationship with God that's come through this ancient book that somehow to them has come alive. And then comes the day when this newcomer gives their life to Christ. And for the first time, they begin to experience it. The book changes, and it begins to speak. It's like it's pure truth being poured into their lives, and it's it's life-giving water, and they're coming alive. And for the first time in their life, they feel like they know the truth, and the truth has set them free.